Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by the National Pork Board. Farm Credit Services of America, Johnsonville Foods, High Pork Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, PIC North America, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and PigEquipment.com. Brought to you by American Resources. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. I'm Matthew Rota, your host, and joining me today is Tony Simpson to talk about animal agriculture in the eyes of venture capital. How are you doing today, Tony? I'm well, Matt. How are you? I'm doing great. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your background and your path to investing and the agricultural space. Of course, happy to. So I started out, um, I like to say, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, um, actually as a grain trader. I went to, uh, my undergrad was done at Millican University in Decatur, Illinois, and that led me to take a job right out of undergrad with ADM. And so I started my career buying corn and soy up and down the Illinois River and, and really all over the country uh, as part of the ADM uh, merchandiser program. Um, moved into operations, <laughs> a little bit unbeknownst to me, um, a couple, about a year later and spent the next five years running a flour mill in Minneapolis. Um, that led me to the ethanol industry. I joined the ethanol industry in the late 90s and had the opportunity to start two greenfield plant, uh, one in southern Minnesota, one in southern or central Michigan. Oh, wow. And uh, it took both of those from literally employee zero all the way through uh, refinancings, expansions, uh, capital additions, uh, you name it, uh, technology additions. It was, a, it was a hell of a ride, but it was a lot of fun. Um, decided to join a startup in the ethanol space that would actually marry the technologies of Milligan Ethanol. And unfortunately, they went to the public markets to raise capital in 2008. So you can imagine how that went. Yeah. Um, when, when they, that uh, didn't go quite so well. Uh, taught me a little bit about entrepreneurship and raising capital, as you would imagine. Um, was able to do a little bit of C-level business development for about a year. And then joined a, a group here in Kansas City called the Kansas Bioscience Authority. <laughs> or the KBA. And the KBA was focused on growing the bioscience sector for the state across five verticals. And, and they actually brought me in originally to work on bioenergy, which quickly morphed in animal health and, and ag. Um, as I had a little bit of background in, well, I had plenty of background in ag and a little bit of background in animal health, at least on the nutrition side. So I took over their, their program and, and worked with them on everything from making grants to making early investments. And so that's really where I got kind of into the entrepreneurial space. Um, had the opportunity to lead deals, the opportunity to diligence a number of deals, and, and you know participate in syndicates for for deals that we were uh, looking at. Help bring companies and, and researchers to the state of Kansas. It was a really a very varied opportunity. Uh, one of the things that was really cool about it is we had a very active human health program as well. 
And so I had the benefit of my colleagues that had years of experience on the human side that I could work with and see their, you know, bring their expertise in on animal deals with, with technologies human health had seen before, but had never been applied in animal. I also had the opportunity to get pulled into their deals that were um, being developed for human, but no one had even thought about animal health. Uh, I like to say that I've had more meetings with entrepreneurs that when you bring up the question of, well, did you think about animal health? You literally get the deer in the headlights look uh, than most people. Uh, <laughs> um, I've had that way too many times. Uh, and, and so that's really morphed into what I'm doing now. I'm a consultant. I'm actually re- uh, working with a partner on potential early stage venture capital fund in the seed space in, in human and animal health. And I advise companies on, on really on both sides. I like to say I advise companies that have capital and are looking at how to deploy it, looking at deals, looking at opportunities, uh, everything from diligence to deal structuring. And then on the flip side, working with entrepreneurs that are trying to access capital and trying to work into the space, but you know don't really have the connections, have never raised capital before. And so are looking for assistance in in uh, being able to defeat investors, to go through the diligence process and, and ultimately understand appropriate terms. So it's a little bit, been a little bit of a ride, but it's, you know, yeah. frankly, it's a lot. So when you were growing up, before you went to college, were you in agriculture or you just decided to get into the trading space? So <laughs> if you'll indulge me, I'll, t- I'll actually tell the story. So my dad grew up on a farm. Uh, my grandfather farmed up until, and lived on a farm up until his passing. Uh, but I was a Chicago City kid. Um, okay. I grew up in, in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, candidly, before I joined ADM, I actually had a job in Chicago with an insurance company. And they made me an offer. Uh, I had a roommate. I was getting ready to move to Chicago at the end of, after graduation. And my advisor at Milliken asked me she, uh, if I would interview with ADM. So we've got a you know, Fortune 100 company that comes to Fortune 50 at the time, company that comes to campus. We'd love to fill the spots. All you have to do is take the interview. You don't even have to take the second if you don't want it. And so I took an interview thinking, I'm, you know, what do I know about agriculture? Why would I go work for, for ADM? Um, the second interview happened on a day I really kind of didn't want to go to class. Uh, and I thought it would be interesting to at least go see the trading floor. And candidly, I got on the trading floor and I was hooked. I, it, was, it was a far more dynamic, far more interesting, far more cool world than I had ever given ag credit. And that that second interview turned into a now pushing thirty year career. That's that's incredible. S- speaking of your career, what is the proudest moment of your career, or at least one of them? Oh gosh, um, probably the the proudest moment for me. Well, if, if, if you let me, I'm actually going to give you two because there's two that I, I'm having trouble choosing between. Yeah. One was uh, the IPO for Aratana. We were one of the earliest investors and did a lot of the early due diligence um, with MPM, Avalon, and Cultivian Sandbox on the creation of Aratana Therapeutics, uh, a human, a, an animal health company that initially was, was based on the third-party you know, biotech development model. And... Um, we were able to invest in every round, including the IPO and a, and a subsequent um, supplemental raise, and um, had a, just a tremendous return. I think it was something north of seven and a half x in three years. Uh, it was just a just an outstanding return, and it was a fun ride. Learned a lot. Got to get to meet a lot of people that I would have never met. Got to be exposed to, to concepts and 
opportunities and and got to got to see a tremendous return. Um, the other, candidly, was raising capital for my plant in southern Minnesota. We um, we had originally, you know, the plant started uh, operations in early 1999, and so it was a very very tough time in agriculture. If you recall, corn prices were really cheap. Um, yeah. There were there was a lot of a lot of suffering going on in the rural communities. We started a plant. We started with razor thin margins, and were able to do some really great things. Built a, built a great team, had a great technology, and were able to bring that plant online and, and the profitability very quickly. And after two years, uh, went out and and raised, I think about another eight million dollars in a matter of seven days. Based on our existing investors, and they were just—they were so blown away. We had done so well with their money; had returned some money already. Um, you know, the plant was nearing being paid off after two years, and we gave them the opportunity to reinvest. And literally had to go to people and say, "I'm sorry, we can't take everything you want. We have to stay pro rata, and some of you just can't, are not going to be able to reinvest at, at beyond what your your pro rata allocation is." Um, and just seeing the impact that had on the community and how proud people were to be part of that business, the, the impact it had on corn prices, the impact it had on on farm incomes, it, um, it was a ball. Really enjoyed it. That is really cool. What about the most challenging? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> so um, I, have, I have been, and I would call it blessed, to have a couple of experiences that... Um, Many people won't won't have gone through. Um, actually, had a gentleman in a, an adjoining plant die in a in a building we we leased to die, and had it blamed on uh, a fumigation that we had gone through in Minneapolis. Um, that was an interesting uh, couple of months. Um, that sounds rough. Everything from you know the legal side to the administrative side to trying to keep a plant running. Uh, it was. Uh, I, I'm. I'm still not how, sure how we came out of it. Uh, my company was not liable. No personal liability or problems. Um, uh, the, the fumigators, I believe, settled with the uh, with the individual's family. But it uh, I learned a lot. Uh, got to experience some things uh, at a very very young age. And um, um, yeah, a lot of a lot of sleepless nights. Uh, I've had the, I've had the chance to start. You know, multiple businesses. Uh, we've had, you know, you've had the the, the trials and tribulations that go with those, uh, and then I've had, you know, investments that have just that have that have struggled. Companies that have have had a good idea, have had a good team, but you know, timing wasn't right, or or capitalization wasn't as deep as they needed, and and working through those challenges and trying to keep them afloat. So, I think like everybody, you, you know, the there are everybody's got great stories and, and has had some fun, and everybody's also got the. Uh, you know, like I say, the stories that are best told over a a, a cold uh, beer or bourbon. Fair. So, do you do you remember uh, do you remember how we met? It was kind of interesting. I'm trying to recall. I think did you apply for one of the investment forums? Yeah, yeah, the KC Animal one, and then uh, you were assigned as my mentor <laughs> for the pitch, and I. And I don't know if I've ever told you this. I do recall that. 
And after your practice pitch, the rest of the coaches looked at me and I said, yeah, my job is just to not screw this up and stay out of Matt's way. Matt does a great job pitching. My job as a coach is to shut the hell up and stay out of the way. And I'm going to do just fine. And if I remember, you won that year. Yeah, um, we did. We did. <laughs> Do you remember? And I got a lot of grief on that one. <laughs> do you remember all of the uh, the debate though between all you guys on whether or not we should keep the video of the mom who lays on her piglet but then gets up and it's okay? I, I absolutely do. I still use that story. So <laughs> I'll, I'll even tell it. So Matt had proposed to use a video that was, I would argue, jarring. Um, it was a piglet that got trapped under under a sow in a traditional environment and you could hear the, the, the cadence of the squeal breath trauma that the piglet was going through before um, the device intervened. The, the sow was shocked and stood up. And the first time I saw it, I told Matt, I said, so here, let me give you the, the, the feedback you're going to get. And I said, but I would leave it in. And people reacted exactly the way we, we expected, which was there were people that were a little bit shocked and a little bit traumatized, I think would be too far, but definitely, you know, had an emotional reaction to it. Um, and, and, and for me, if I recall, my response was, you know, you're, you're pitching in front of, you know, a, an audience of 400 trying to stand out between 12 or 13 companies. Sometimes that's okay. Sometimes standing out because you're you're a little different because you, you show something that people remember, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, it's not like you're pandering. It's not like you're you're doing it solely for shock value. It's the actual application. Um, I think people remembered it, and and I think it's it's part of the reason you did so well, if I recall. Yeah. So the the, the video it wasn't even a demo. It was just a so there's a sow walking around in an open open pen. So very traditional, very socially accepted right not controversial in any way where people are saying the piglet is laid on because it's in a commercial farm or anything we we found this video and this mom kind of slips and falls on her pig and it's facing the camera and it's squealing and squealing and squealing and after about five seconds it squeezes out grunts a couple times and just walks it off and you're right the the looks on people's faces when they saw this piglet getting laid on and and they thought they were going to see it die like they were they were emotionally invested for the rest of that presentation and it was <laughs> it was funny because half the group was like i don't i don't they might shut down the presentation and, and this was something we had <laughs> we had faced for like four years i mean we we were fortunate enough to go through an accelerator where we were able to test this um safely with a lot of individuals and uh found that yeah, it's emotionally jarring, but everybody wants to save the piglets after you see it. I, I think it, it brings the problem to a clarity that most presentations don't. It, it's very easy, especially in production ag, for a problem to be abstract. If you're not you know, particularly informed or particularly involved in that operation, and let's face it, many of the investors just had not been in a in a yeah. cow barn. And so, yeah, I think for the people that had, I don't think it was jarring. For the for the rest, I think it definitely highlighted, hey, this is the problem, this is the issue, and this is how we can help. 
So oh, no, it's always I, I, a few people there who leaned over and were like, oh, my goodness, that's exactly what it's like. And then the whole table was like, you've got to be kidding me. No, that's exactly right. And I think that's one of the challenges in, in Animal Ag, to be honest with you, is we just don't have a tremendous amount of investors that have that breadth of experience. That, that have, you know, that have come up on the ag side or been involved in agriculture or, you know, and, and I'm, again, I just started, told you my background. I didn't come up that way, uh, but I've certainly been doing it for a few years. But I'm also really fortunate that I have a lot of people that I, I have grown to know that will take my phone call. And if I say, hey, I want to go through a sow barn, who should I talk to? Well, get me out there. Um, and yeah. so I can, I can, you know, I can go get big poop on my boots and I walk around and I can see it for myself and I can have a, a personal relationship to the technology and the problem that, that might be a little bit different than, than others. It's so hard to stand out. I mean, everybody who invests knows what it's like to lose a loved one and usually knows somebody who has died from a variety of instances. And so healthcare solutions that come up, everyone can at least in some way emotionally connect to those. And the examples that are given in those presentations are very emotionally um, driven. And consumer tech, we, we all have problems we face on a day to day, but taking agriculture and animal agriculture and making it relatable, I, it, it, I agree. I think that is one of the biggest and greatest challenges that founders have when trying to stand out in, in a crowd. So before we get into some of the questions I, I have, um, I have some rapid fire questions for you. And the first one, I know the answer to, but nobody here here knows the answer to it. And maybe I don't know the exact answer because maybe I just know one of them. But are you a diehard fan of any sports team? <laughs> oh, that's mean. <laughs> I am a diehard Denver Broncos fan. Have been for pushing 35 years. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> If you had to sing karaoke, you had to do it. What's your go-to song? Oh, my God. Probably My Way by Sinatra. There you go. Oh, that'd be fun. That'd be fun to hear you sing that one. Um, <laughs> I think you'd be off-key on that and still pull it off. <laughs> what is the top? What is at the top of your bucket list for travel? Wow. Great question. Um Honestly, I want to go out and do either uh, the Pacific Coast Highway or the Tale of the Dragon on a motorcycle. I uh, have not done either of those yet in my travels, and, and that's, that's got to happen. Are you an adrenaline junkie kind of guy? Have you ever done anything? What's the most adrenaline jarring thing you've done? <laughs> so, um, yes, absolutely an adrenaline junkie. Um, own multiple motorcycles, um, have, have gone uh, bungee jumping, um, have, have ridden mechanical bulls. Um, uh, gosh, um, probably the most adrenaline junkie thing was back in the early days of bungee jumping. The bungee jumped over a parking lot in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Oh, jeez, are you serious? I'm dead serious. It was before they did it over water, before they did it over a big mat. And uh, I was actually working, it was when I was with ADM and, and traveling, and I went through um, uh, Cedar Rapids, and they were setting up for the Iowa Fair. And they, I, we were watching it, and I go, I'm going to go do that this weekend. And everybody in the office kind of, you know, poo-pooed that idea, said, no, you're never going to do that. And so I did it. It was amazing. Uh, a <laughs> little bit unreal as you're kind of falling at, at asphalt, but 
at that size. And as you know, I'm not a small guy, so you know that the the strength of that bungee was something that, that <laughs> certainly brought a few questions to mind. Um, but yeah, no, I I absolutely yeah love that. Uh, love love fast cars. Love motorcycles. Uh, yeah. If you could have dinner or a beer with any historical or living today individual, who would it be? And why? Probably, probably Abraham Lincoln. Uh, just to, I, I think there's so much of Lincoln that has been misrepresented, um, that has been interpreted, and to just understand what went through his mind as he faced the nation, you know, the, the potential collapse of the nation, and tried to hold the nation together. You know, faced states fighting against each other, faced one of the the most divisive concepts in, in um, slavery that, that we've ever faced and, and abolished it, to, to really understand his frame of mind and how he approached those things and how he let, you know, led through that time would be, would be fascinating. Yeah, especially if you can give like a true serum or something too, so you don't. It's not political in any ways. It's just flat well, out. I, I would think at the, I, I would <laughs> think at this point if I could sit down with him, I, you know, the statute of limitations is gone. Nobody that was alive then, other than you know him at this time, would be there. So yeah, I'd probably be pretty candid. I would hope. So when we talk about investing in animal agriculture and agriculture in general, what would you say are some of the emerging trends and innovations in the space, and which ones are currently attracting the most interest or what concepts are attracting the most interest from VCs? Uh, one of the biggest things right now that, that I see virtually everywhere is the concept, and I'll, I'll refer to it as that because there's a variety of different approaches, the concept of reducing methane emissions in um, beef and dairy. Um, a, a variety of different additives, variety of different um drugs, a variety of different feed concepts to reduce methane emissions and, and to improve the, the odor slash environmental emissions associated with CAFOs around dairy and, and beef. Um, I think there's a lot of interest there. There's still a, a tremendous amount of questions on the biology. Um, if, if you don't, the animal doesn't produce methane, what does it produce? If you think about it yeah. from a systems yeah. perspective, you know, where, where, what did that methane become and where did it go? And is it beneficial to the animal? Is it, you know, is it beneficial to the environment? Is it detrimental in any way? Um, I, I think the, the concept, I think the concept is, is well-meaning. I think the science is fascinating. And, you know, I've actually heard folks that say, well, we believe that it could turn into uh, metabolites that the animal would, would actually use and, 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 actually improve feed conversion which that would be the holy grail in animal uh nutrition if you could do that right if you could actually have an environmental benefit and a, and a feed conversion benefit that would be uh, that would be ridiculous i, yeah, I you hit welfare that. profitability and sustainability all on the same pill <laughs> in, in a so in a silver bullet then it, yep. it literally at that point is about is about the economics um you know can you afford to feed it and can you you know can you can you buy it for a, a discount to what your returns would be to where there is an economic return. That's probably one of the hottest areas I've seen um, on the on the companion animal side. There's still a lot of folks looking at cancer um, and, and long-term diseases. Um, 
if you think on companion, you're always going to have a lot of activity around osteoarthritis. You're going to have a lot of uh, activity around diabetes and um, weight management. Uh, but there's still a lot of folks that are interested in cancer. Um, you're also seeing on the, again on the on the companion side a lot of activity around monoclonal antibodies. The products for atopic dermatitis have been wildly successful. I think far more successful than than we ever thought would be at least initially, and have, have created a new market. So we're starting to see more activity in MABs on the companion side. Uh, back to the production side, seeing a lot of location based technologies. Uh, again, more on the on the ruminant side and on the pasture side, uh, but but things that would keep an animal uh, allow you to track an animal, keep it in certain areas, um, like virtual uh, fencing of, and wearable health monitoring. It, it, exactly, exactly. Okay. Wearable health has been around a long time. Yeah, it's a it it's got its challenges, candidly, um, both from a cost and more from a in my mind, more from a an intervention standpoint. I know this animal has a fever. Am I really going to do anything about it? Okay, especially in a in a pasture type scenario. Um, if, if you can do some sort of monitoring and, at a pen level, and maybe take pen level intervention, I think that's interesting. Um, in a in a pasture, I think you know the the question I always come back to in a lot of those diagnostic type technologies is candidly, so what? Uh, if I know what's happening. What can I do about it? And if the answer is, well, I know. Yeah, that, can you that really operationalize isn't... it? Exactly. Well, can you monetize it, really? I mean, that's yeah. the, the, the more direct answer. Not, not only can you do something, but does doing something create an economic return after you pay for the, the device? You know, if the device is going to cost you $100 a year, and I find out that I have to give a drug that costs me $20 per animal, and it saves me $75, um, I'm good. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to eat the problem. I'm fine. Or even better, um, it costs you a hundred bucks and you have to give $25. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're, you're on the positive on the subscription, but after you actually do the intervention, you're actually negative. Correct. Correct. Exactly. Right. So, so a lot of these have been, you know, I've seen a number of technologies, you know, wearables, um, remote tracking, you know, ear tags, room and boluses. There's been a lot on, on the, um, uh, on the wearable side, the diagnostic side, that it, it becomes a little bit challenging when you start coming back to producer economics. The other th area that I'm seeing a lot more of is use of image analysis, machine learning, and AI. Uh, it, I hate to be the guy that brings up AI, but I will. Uh, there's a lot of folks trying to use it. There's a lot of folks trying to capture data and imaging and then convert that into uh, meaningful interventions. Um, folks that are doing it and doing gait analysis in swine that are trying to be able to, to do gait analysis or postural analysis in cattle. Um, folks that are using AI in, in poultry barns to identify, there's a, there's a company that's got a robot that, that works for poultry barns to identify down birds. Um, you know, uh, people that are really taking that technology to the next level. And, and some are having tremendous success. It's actually getting quite interesting. Yeah, the first founders with computer vision, uh, history didn't really treat them well. Like when you think about Canthus, right? They came out with a really neat innovation, but ultimately kind of folded um, through a series of 
sales events and it just seems like some people were just too early and now it's really picking up. Timing is such a critical factor and it's one of the most difficult things to evaluate and, and to really manage both from a standpoint of an entrepreneur and from an investor. Um, I think there have been a tremendous amount of technologies that have failed, not because the technology wasn't good, not because the solution wasn't good, not because there wasn't a need, but because they were too early. And, and there just wasn't a recognition by either producers or by the market or by investors that this was a problem that needed to be solved. Um, you know, and, and, and oftentimes, you know, if you, if you've done this and I'm sure, you know, you've been around ag a long time as well, there's times that you see solutions that gain traction and you go, that's not as good as something I saw two years ago that failed. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it, it unfortunately there's a recency timing, bias to it. It, it, it is that the recency it's a, there's so many other factors, you know, the overall economic market margins, producer margins, when we're talking about uh, production animals, um, you know, how many times will we look at something and producers are going, listen, I'm worried about keeping the lights on and the doors open. I don't have money for other technologies right now. My margins, my margins are barely, you know, in some cases they're negative. I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to be farming next year or, or raising animals next year. I, I don't have time for this new technology or, or capital to do that. Whereas, you know, three years later, uh, they, the, you know, the margins have turned, the market's in a different position and they have that, you know, capital to look at optimization. You know, it's a, it's a tough, it's one of the toughest things I find that, that we have to try to evaluate is, is really is the timing right. Yeah. I mean, when we look at animal ag, when COVID hit for the, for the next five, six months, uh, timing for anything was horrible. Oh my God. Uh, other than, <laughs> other than like due diligence. And then they started making money hand over fist for the next two years, year and a half. And timing was amazing to bring in some, some, some great tech because labor challenges were still there. There was still an opportunity for improvement and throughput. And now the markets for the past two years have been terrible. And so like, this is like the worst time yet again. And so just within the last four years, there's only been about a year, year and a half of ideal go-to-market time for a sophisticated piece of tech. Well, and that was a time that unless you had really, you were really near completion at the beginning of COVID, when lockdown yeah. started and things got bad, you probably weren't ready to hit the market at that time to take advantage of it uh, because you couldn't get work done during COVID and, and there was so much uncertainty. Money got tight, and no, you're. I think you're. You're absolutely right. The cyclicality of our industry. I, I, I use the energy industry. I actually had this conversation the other day, and I think I think ag is is the the peaks and troughs are a little bit flatter, uh, but but the concept's the same, and that is we tend to when when there's a shock in agriculture, both from a policy standpoint and and really from a societal standpoint. We start worrying about food security. We start worrying about you know the, the availability of food. We start worrying about food prices, and we start to throw resources towards it. But then the market kind of bottoms out, and margins get big again. We've got plenty. Supplies are really good. There's a lot of animal on animals on feed. Everything looks good, and all of a sudden we go, eh, the problem went away. We're gonna we're not gonna see these things through because there isn't a problem today, and the economics are better, and we're not gonna worry about it. And then all of a sudden <laughs> we go right back down. Yeah, prices go prices go back up, and and we in energy, uh, it, it's 
to me, it's it's almost laughable because you'll see people just we need to you know we need to look at alternative energy sources and what are we going to do about you know uh, foreign foreign oil coming into the United States and we need to support you know bioenergy production and then gas goes to a dollar eighty and everybody goes yeah we're good Let's, we don't need to worry about that stuff anymore. Uh, I think some of that is true in 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 animal agriculture as well, just maybe not as extreme. So. I want to dive into some of the key factors that you consider when evaluating potential investments. We've talked about timing and some other stuff, but I'd also, if you find it relevant, would love for you to share the story around the cancer treatment for the dog and your friend who recommended you meet uh, with that group. Um, you, if you, can, you remember that one. <laughs> I remember that one and I love that one. And if you're comfortable oh sharing, God. I would love it. But yeah, what are some of the key factors you consider? I will. So I'll do key factors first, and then I'll do a little storytelling. Um, so key factor team is is always the the most important. Um, a, a great a great jockey can take a mediocre horse and win races. A uh, a, a poor jockey can take a thoroughbred and finish last. Uh, it is about the team. It is about the ability of the leadership. In, in, a, in a number of different factors, but most of all in the ability to build a network, to build a, a team around them, and to attract not just advisors, not just capital, not just friends, but all of it to them so that it, it really, you know, they, they build that community around the, around the company and around the technology that's needed to take it forward. Secondly, is really you know the, the the concept of product market fit what is the the true need in the marketplace and how does this product address that need better than what else is out there and, and where how are they positioned in that marketplace such that the price is justified um you know and that's a little bit of what we talked about in some of the technologies before but um, you know, if it's a $25 problem and you have a $75 solution, there's really not much to talk about. Uh, if it's a $25 problem, you have a $2 solution, but there's a 25 cent solution that, that does 80% of what you do. We may not have a product either. So it's, it's really understanding that that fit in the marketplace. Uh, and then it's, and then it's traction. Has the you know what kind of traction has the company built? Has the company been able to get pilots in place? Have they done in in animal ag? It's you know one of the nice things is have they done proof of concept in species? It's uh, you know we're fortunate in in uh, animal health and and ag we can go right to the market and do proof of concept studies. We don't have to go through years and years of testing like they do on the human side. So can you you know? Can you show me that this does what you say it's going to do, at least conceptually, in your target species? That's critically important. Um, and, and then, you know, candidly, there's there's a little bit of a smell test. You know, is there, does it, you, know, you put all this together and you go, is this, is this likely to be something that, that this company can do? We know that they're not going to do exactly what they're planning to do today. That's That's never going to be the case. But can we see them... Can we see them pivot? Can we see them take this and 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 morph it into something that that responds to the market as they get closer? Those are those are really the key dynamics for me as I think about it. Gotcha. So through this story, 
can you share uh, some examples of, of what founders do to really screw up? <laughs> sure. So a, a, this was probably well, this was a good 10, 12 years ago. And a, a colleague of mine went to the JP Morgan conference in New York, uh, which is a, a massive healthcare conference, tens of thousands of people, uh, lots of innovation. And, and he calls me and he gets back and says, hey, I've got a technology I, I need you to take a look at. I said, what do you got? He goes, I've got a cancer treatment for dogs. And I said, I'm going to pass. I'm done. Not, not interested. And he said, no, 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 no. It's, it's, you need to take a look at this. And I said, you know, I, I really, I, I hate the space. Um, you know, the, the market at that time was maybe if you took all the, all the animal approved products, it was probably less than 50 million. If you took the human products, you probably weren't to a hundred million total in the entire marketplace. It's just a itty bitty tiny portion of the market. Um, there are so many challenges that that come with it, um, you know. And fundamentally, cancer in pets is usually diagnosed very, very late. Usually, it's 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 stage three or stage four, um, and most therapies really really can't help. Um, and then you start thinking about the economics of spending thousands and thousands of dollars on a on a pet that has months to live. Uh, so I, I I'm I'm not a great fan of the space even today, but back then I really wasn't a fan. And uh, he goes, no, no, it's a small molecule. It's cheap. This is going to be great. <laughs> okay, I'll take the call. I'm not sure I want to do this, but I trust you. So I'm working from home the day of the call, and I get a slide deck for a one-hour call, and it's 87 slides. <laughs> you asked what, what founders do that drives investors nuts. That's, that, that would be one. Okay. I, I text my buddy and I'm like, I already hate these people. <laughs> this is not going to go well for them. I'm not happy. What are we doing here? So we get on the call and the, the founder's a veterinarian. So I'm, I'm actually somewhat excited. I'm like, all right, maybe, maybe I've been too harsh. You know, I, one of the things I, I, I have to work on myself all the time is not prejudging. Let's try to be, you know, let's try to stay open-minded. Let's listen to new information as it comes in. Okay, this person's a vet, she knows the animal space. Let's, you know, let, let's be reasonable. And I go, so, well, tell me about the route of administration. Well, the route of administration is, it's not a small molecule. This is a biologic. And you have to inject your dog every day, twice a day, for six months. Now, Matt, I, I don't know if you have pets. I don't know that we've talked about this before. but And I don't know if you've ever tried to inject your dog. The first one ain't great. The second one is far less good. Uh, and by the third one, a dog that you want to wag its tail and come running to you and, and show you affection is now hiding under the couch every time you come in the room looking at you and bearing its teeth because you hurt. And I'm going to do this every day for six months. Um, to me, this was a fundamental misunderstanding of the market. To, to give you some con uh, uh, context, one of the biggest problems of dogs with diabetes is that owners will actually put them down as opposed to going through injecting them you know, several times a day, in part because of the lifestyle change it takes. Okay, So I'm now going to have a dog on a cancer med that I have to inject twice a day every day. And so I, to me, it was, it was a, just a fundamental myth. Um, they went through a bunch of other things and they're trying to explain the cancer market and, you know, telling me how big the market is. Here's another misnomer. Um, 
when you're pitching to investors, don't assume they don't know your market. Assume they know it as well, if not better than you do. Uh, these folks are telling us the cancer market's a billion dollars. And I'm going, I think you may have added a zero, maybe two. I'm not sure that <laughs> I'm not sure it's as big as you think it is, uh, particularly in pets. So let's, you know, let's pop the brakes here a little bit. And so I finally got to the point where I'm like, all right, we're going to have to slow this call down and maybe bring it to an end. And so I asked the lady to, to walk me through it's the COGS and, you know, tell me what your cost of production is. And she explains that they are, they can build or they can make a batch of fermentation broth um, for $25,000. And I said, okay, how many does that, how many animals does that treat? She said, well, that treats one. And I go, okay, so it's twenty five thousand dollars. Your cost is twenty five thousand. And so I did the I did the quick, and I go, I'll, I'm I'm just going to really over oversimplify this. Your cost is twenty five thousand. That means you would want to sell it into the industry, sell it, you know, x your factory at somewhere around fifty thousand. And she goes, yeah, that's right. We double it. And I go, and let's just assume everybody else is playing along, and there's just one doubling when in fact it's usually somewhere between two and three by the time it gets to the veterinarian and then the veterinarian has a market. But let's just assume from your, your, your doc to the, to the needle tip at the, at the vet, it's a one other doubling. She goes, yeah, that, I mean, that's fair. She goes, that's probably a little low, but yeah. And I go, so you're telling me your product is a hundred thousand dollars per dog. And she goes, yeah, that sounds about right. As I've told you before, Matt, my brain didn't know what to do with that. <laughs> um, you know, there, there may be celebrities that pay $100,000 to treat their dog for cancer, um, but there are not. Th that's not a market. Um, that's not, you know, that's, that's not what normal people pay to treat their pets. And so I, I think, you know, the takeaway besides this being frankly well, hilarious. And one one more. What, what did they say when you asked about competition? Well, there's nobody else that does what we do. There's, there's no one else that does what we do. So, of course, we could charge that much. And what did yeah, you say? You're right. <laughs> you're right. And I, I said, well, I, I started to say this isn't a product. And I said, but the reality is there probably are celebrities, but Paris Hilton treating her dogs for cancer does not make a company. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to be out. Um, the market is just, it, it was a fundamental misunderstanding of how people behave. Yeah. And the, you know, and I've used this before and it sounds heartless, Hope, you know, hopefully to folks in commercial ag, it'll, it'll, it maybe won't be quite so bad. But when we talk about competition in, in, you know, particularly in cancer, but other terminal illnesses in pets, you know, competition to me is $75 in a puppy. Okay. Uh, and that sounds horrible, but if I'm standing at the counter and I have a 13 year old black lab that I love absolutely dearly. I've had him since he was a puppy. He is my dog. Sits there and taps my foot while I eat and make sure I know he's there. Okay? This is my boy. If tomorrow he were diagnosed with cancer, we would keep him comfortable. We would make sure he had his last days were good. And then we would have him euthanized. And that probably would cost $75 to several hundred dollars. It's not going to cost $10,000. I'm not going to torture him the rest of his life. And unfortunately, the economics of that are, are what most people face. And so that the competition really is euthanasia and a puppy, not, you know, this other product that is only $9,000. Right, they're hyper-focusing on things that solve the problem in a similar way versus the other way out. 
and that's so I've done I've done some speaking on this, I've done some coaching on competition. And and I look at competition slightly differently than most people. And that is I don't look at competition as who else does what you do. Okay. Cause I don't really care what you do. I want to know how a person solves the same problem that you're trying Another to way. solve. Yeah. And one of the things that, that companies often overlook is the do nothing. Okay. So, and, and, and in production ag, I think this is the one that wins more times than people don't realize. If yeah. I can do nothing and it costs me, you know, $10 an animal, or I can spend $30 on your product. Really, I'm only saving 20 but you better give me better than a $20 benefit or I'll just lose $10 and I'll be fine. I'll do nothing. Yeah, I was talking and I'll with just the producer the other day and they were saying, you know, I want my day. I want in my data, I want to be able to learn someday. Um, should I even treat the animal when they're sick or should I just sell them to market? Right. Are, are they worth putting through a treatment plan or does the data suggest that even though you perform the treatment plan, it's going to cost more than what it's really worth than actually just selling them and, and, and replacing them with a, with a younger guilt. hundred percent of the time. I think that is absolutely the question. And, and I think, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm ascribing to producers a, a little bit here, but I think there's a lot of producers out there that don't trust a lot of these solutions to have the kind of efficacy that, that they claim because they've, yeah. they've been sold on things that were less than, um, were less than efficacious in the past. They've, they've struggled to get the, the benefits out. Um, they're used to people telling them that something's worth, you know, 10 X when it's really worth two X. And so they're a little bit suspicious that they'll get the kind of return or the kind of, of response. And so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it's, again, you know, the, the do nothing or the, the call the animal and move on opportunities in ag and, and animal ag are far more prevalent and far easier. Yeah, there's already a process. Risky. There's a process and I know the outcome. Okay. And so I'm, you know, and, and if it's a disease, especially if it's something that, that's transmissible, I have to think about the other animals in my herd. I have to think about, you know, uh, the ability to move animals, possibly export if it's a certain disease. You know what? Sometimes it's just better business to cut your losses and move on. So I, I think entrepreneurs need to, and I think we as investors need to look at that when we start looking at that product market fit and say, okay, you know, yeah, how do they deal with it today? And what is what are the downsides and upsides of that? And and remember that calling or doing nothing and 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 recognizing, you know, a smaller a smaller economic benefit may not be a bad outcome. Um, and it, and it certainly may be one that's preferred. Um, you you also mentioned you know treating an animal. One of the things that that's often the case is. You know, in many times we don't have the sophisticated diagnostics in animal ag that we have on the human side, and even if we do, the cost in a production animal is probably worth more than the animal's margin. If you did go put them through a, a you know a, a, a sophisticated diagnostic panel, so in some cases, I'm going to treat an animal with a broad spectrum antibiotic because it's cheap, it's available, and I you know might it'll it'll address my initial suspicion as a veterinarian. And if it does work, great, I was right. And if it doesn't, well, we're going to load them on the truck and we're going to move them on. 
Um, a lot of times that's the, the diagnostic theory is I think it's what it is. I'm going to treat it right away. I'm going to treat it with something available. And if that works, good. I was right. And if it doesn't, then I'll move on. So um, I've had vets, I've looked at some diagnostic technologies and, you know, it, the point at which it makes sense economically becomes really, it has to be really low. What other things uh, or what other advice would you have for either founders or farmers who are, there's, there's a battle here, right? Because farmers need entrepreneurs to come up with new ideas. And entrepreneurs need farmers to adopt those ideas for them to become self-sustaining. Otherwise, you just get a new idea every four years, it dies off and you get a new one, it dies off and no progress is made or little progress is made. How? What advice do you have for both of them and the sector in general? So let me start with the, with the entrepreneur. I, the, the best thing an entrepreneur can do is get in front of their customer. Okay. And, and let me, let me, let me dig into that for just half a second. Understanding who your customer is. Um, you know, and I know I've told you this story in the past, Matt, but I've had folks that have come to me on the, on the row crop ag side and said, well, we're going to sell this, this chemical and we're going to sell it. We'll go farmer to farmer. And you stop and go, have you ever met a farmer? Have you ever met anybody that grows, you know, corn that way? Well, no, why? Because that's not how they buy their chemicals. You're, <laughs> you are literally wasting your time in theirs and they're not going to talk to you. They've got an ag chem supplier that they've probably known for 30 years. They've probably gone to their children's weddings and vice versa. They've known these people a long time and that's who they buy their chemistry from. And if you don't go through them, you don't sell. Okay. Now, relationships obviously aren't always quite that close, but there's the understanding how your ultimate user buys and gets access to the product is critical. Okay. Uh, on the nutrition side, you know, uh, if I if I wanted to sell a product in swine nutrition, I'm not going to sell to the barn owner. They have very little control of that. So I'm going to have to go sell to, you know, the, the nutritionist at Tyson or, or Smithfield, et cetera. And so understanding who that customer is and how they make decisions, I think is critical and getting in front of them early and often, understanding what they're looking for, understanding either the features or the economics or the benefits that are important to them. If it's, you know, we talked about, you know, margins, if it's a, if it's a three X margin that they need to be able to demonstrate understanding what that means from a pricing standpoint and, and what kind of benefit you can deliver, but really understanding that voice of the customer. I, I can't stress it enough. Get in front of them, understand how they make decisions, understand what their real world challenges are today. Um, I, I tell the story all the time. I was looking at a new technology before I got into the innovation space and I saw something and I, I went and talked to a farmer I knew really well. And he said, Tony, I really like this. This is really cool. He said, but here's the deal. We are six months away from being bankrupt if we don't solve this problem over here. And he said, so I really don't care about anything else right now. I am trying to figure out how to save this business. And so whatever you bring to me, come talk to me in a year. Maybe I'll have money. Maybe I won't. But right now I just don't care. Understanding what their pressures are, understanding what their issues are, understanding what things are critical to them is so important, not just in deploying a new technology, but, but figuring out your timing, figuring out how to position this. So, so really doing that, um, early and often, and then really getting to that, that proof of concept in species 
Uh, you know, is it a small study early? Is it pilot studies later on? Uh, but being able to show in a real-world environment that that your product does what you believe it can do, I think is critical. Um, data is still king, and you need to be able to show to producers, show producers that you can do what you say you're going to do. Um, on the producer side, I think it's it's really taking risks and, and working with entrepreneurs in a way that makes sense. Okay. Um, you know, we've all, we've all been through it. We've all seen the snake oil stories. We've all seen the value added co-ops that came in and, and were, were less than, than ideal for the producer. I, I think we've got to get past some of that and, and remain open, understand that technology and innovation is what's going to allow producers to, to be sustainable. Uh, and I mean sustainable both from a environmental standpoint, but also from a financial and a, and a business and a land standpoint. Um, I think they we need to continue to have this innovation. So, so doing you know participating in trials, participating in focus groups, um, you know investing in groups that invest in early stage innovations. Um, I think all of that is really critical. Staying staying close to your extension uh, groups, uh, your industry groups, and pushing them to really be focused in innovation. I think is key. Um, I think all of those are things producers can do. Deploying technology in a reasonable manner, um, you know, not waiting till your, your neighbor does it, but understanding that you can pilot things as well. I think all of that can be helpful. From an industry standpoint, I think there's a couple of things that we need to do. And this this literally covers everyone from investors to end users to distributors and 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 sellers. Number one, I think we need to do a better job of telling our story. I think there's still way too many folks that are disconnected from from land, disconnected from agriculture, disconnected from what it takes to produce our food. And and so really, you know, I, I think for, for a number of years we've gotten away from appreciating that that we need to educate and and just, you know, let us do what we do. We're good at it. Um, I think there's too many folks that are trying to tell the story their way um, that, that don't have agriculture in their best interest and are, and are hurting our industry. So I, I think telling our story more is is, is critical. Secondly, and I, I've been pushing this personally, and I just mentioned it a few minutes ago, this idea of sustainability. I think sustainability needs to be redefined. Um, we've let the environmental crowd define sustainability. I think sustainability is the ability to farm in the next 10 years, the next 15 years, the next generation. And, and that encompasses the environment. That encompasses care for the land. That encompasses economics. If you make money, you can farm next year. You, you, you lose money too many years in a row, guess what? Nobody's farming. So how can we how can we make farmers more sustainable in a way that allows them to grow really robust and profitable businesses that are doing the right thing by by the land, which most producers want to see done anyway, doing the right thing by the environment, which feeds the land, um, raising healthy animals that that produce great products, producing crops that are clean and 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 are are in high demand. And doing so in a way that that our children and our grandchildren and our great grandchildren have an opportunity to make business, make a business out of farming. 
So to me, that's a it, it's it's a little bit esoteric, but I think we I think we forget about that a lot. That this isn't about just how do we get year to year, but how do we grow something that that can be sustainable for generations. I think that's something the consumer misses too. Is most family farms are thinking generationally, and in a fast paced world, I don't think many people in many industries or in many walks of life have to think as generational as farming. Not at all. No, you're absolutely right. And so how do we look at technologies that allow that? You know, how do we, how do we look at not just laws and not just regulations, but technology practices, demand, product demand, um, you know, I'm I'm still struggling with people that think it is healthier to eat something that was grown in a petri dish than to eat an animal that was produced by someone that's you know a fifth generation, <laughs> you know, pork farmer or, or uh, cattle rancher. Um, you know, but, but the scientists whipped it up in a petri dish, so it's it's clearly better for me. Um, I don't get it. I don't understand that. Right. Um, it's proof we're doing something wrong, and we just got to figure out what that is. We do. And I think that's the messaging. I really do. Um, I, I'm glad to see that that the trends in, in alternative proteins have slowed. Um, you know, I've always, one of the things I've struggled with is, I think the market has a way of correcting those things, not just in terms of long-term, but it's, it's, it's fun to be trendy and go eat alternative meat when you know, interest rates are low and, and incomes are high and prices are low. It's another thing to pay extra for something like that uh, when times are tight, when you're worried about your next paycheck and you're worried about what your savings look like. Uh, people tend to revert back to kind of the old standards. So it, it, as much as I hate to see what, it, what the economy's gone through over the last, you know, year or so, uh, it does tend to bring us back to reality a little bit in, in terms of some of these beliefs and some of these systems. Um, you know, it's great to pay $9 for a pound of chicken um, that was grown in a lab that, that, you know, isn't, you know, that, that wasn't raised in a cage that wasn't, that wasn't raised in a conventional poultry production system. Uh, it's another thing when you can't afford $9 a pound. So. Well, now even free range, there's, there's all, I've seen a bunch of ads where they're like free range, free range means this, and they're not even happy with free range anymore. And it's going to mean X amount of square foot per bird within free range. And it, it's just, it's going to keep getting harder and harder. Work. It doesn't work. And, and that's, that's what I mean by telling her story, because I think, you know, I think there's this belief that, that conventional and, and traditional ag practices are abusive. They're harmful to the animal. They're, you know, they're, they're somehow simply a, a means of, of, you know, profit making at the expense of all else. And I've yet to meet a producer that doesn't care for his animals I've, or her animals. I've yet to meet a producer that doesn't give of themselves so those, so that the animals are comfortable and productive and, and, safe and are not in pain. Um, so I, it, it's, it's simply a matter of telling our story better and educating even back to when people are, you know, when, when the children and helping them appreciate uh, just how agriculture works. So I, you know, I still see, I, and my wife hates it, you know, we'll go through, we'll go through the grocery store and I'll see, you know, um, cases of watermarked no GMO. 
and my wife will just wince because she knows there's a 10-minute tirade coming from how in the hell are you going to genetically modify water? Can you please explain the science to me because it doesn't exist? Uh, at that point, she usually wants to go look at clothing, so she knows I'll leave her. But I'm like, how? How is this a thing? But we do it, and, and we allow it to happen, and 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 we don't take, you know, I I had a conversation, with, and I usually don't, I usually don't go too far with people I don't know really well. But I had a conversation with a PhD that tried to explain to me that there's genetically modified wheat in bread. I said, well, you'd have to. That'd be really hard to find since there's never been a, a, a wheat variety that's been commercialized, you know? And I asked, well, how many GMO varieties are? Oh, there's, you know, there's like dozens. And I'm like, I think there's like 16, 16, 19, 14, somewhere. I can, I can never remember the exact number. Definitely less than 20. He's like, oh, no, that's not true. And I'm like, and one of the other folks at the table goes, yeah, listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. It's a very small number. And the crops that we've genetically modified and commercialized we did because we were going to lose them otherwise. Yeah. You know, in many cases we couldn't afford to produce them or we we're going to lose them to pests. So I, I think there's so many beautiful and, and amazing and, and just transformational things happening in agriculture. I think we need to tell our story better. Well, we appreciate you coming on and being a guest on the popular pig podcast. It's been a real pleasure, Tony. Matt, it's been a blast. I've, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.